This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua 23. In Luke 24 and John 5, Jesus says... The Bible's about him. That includes the Old Testament. All of it is about him. And uh, that is a defining characteristic of our church. We want to learn to read the Bible the way Jesus would have read the Bible. And uh, that's true of um, how we're working through the scriptures. In the fall, we started in, uh, in the book of Genesis. And during the school years, we're going to methodically work our way all the way to the end of it. Um, Now, I realize that the Old Testament stories, the Old Testament passages can seem foreign to us because of their cultural distance. But it might be helpful to you, as you approach the Old Testament, to keep Jesus' words in mind. He said, Moses, the prophets, all of that, they wrote about me. So every passage in some way, shape, or form has a Jesus shape to it, a gospel shape to it. Old Testament stories, the Old Testament passages are enactments of the gospel. Such is true of the passage that we're looking at today. Joshua 23, after a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them. Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I'm very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, 
So he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he's given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. This chapter has a gospel shape to it. It's a rehearsing of the gospel. So we're going to look at it under these three headings this morning. We're looking at how grace works, how obedience works, and how God's promises work. How grace works, how obedience works, how God's promises work. First, how grace works. The story of Joshua is about how God and his sovereign power broke into Canaan and conquered it. Canaan had fallen into false gods, and the invasion of it was a divine reclaiming of the land for God's purposes. And the text goes to great lengths to demonstrate God's sovereign work. Look at it. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out from before you. There's a tremendous sense here that God has moved in and nothing and no one can withstand his power. And in this case, his power is working on behalf of his people for the good of his people. This is sovereign grace. It's sovereign grace. But what does this look like for us today? God's not calling us to take possession of a geographical land. So how do we appropriate this text into the Christian life? Well, it begins first by understanding the significance of the land for Israel. This land signified rest. Numerous other passages spell this out. This land was going to be a place of rest. Not a place where they get great naps or good night's rest, but a place that provides them with a deep sense of existential settledness, of satisfaction, of contentment. This theme of rest is replete throughout Scripture. It takes on a couple of different meanings in the New Testament. One of them comes to us from Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's not a great nap, but existential settledness. A sense of wholeness, completeness, satisfaction. So in following Jesus, you can find this existential settledness. So rest for Israel was all about the land, which God sovereignly provides for them. Rest for us is all about following Jesus, which God also sovereignly works in us to bring about. How? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 2, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. Now, if you've spent any time at all in a Bible teaching church, undoubtedly, you will have heard this phrase, we are saved by grace. Saved by grace. Now, most of the time, when that phrase is used, it's in contrast to saved by 
works. Which means we are saved not because of the good lives we live, because we can't live good enough in order to achieve that saved status. Instead, we are saved because of the life Jesus lived and the death he died for us. We don't contribute anything to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Most of the time when we hear the phrase, saved by grace, this is what it's referring to. But that's not what Ephesians 2, 1 to 5 is talking about. The part that we're familiar with comes later in verses 8 and 9. This is the first occurrence of this phrase, saved by grace. Look at it. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. So what is grace? It is God working sovereignly in us to raise us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's grace because we were dead. Dead. Paul makes a point to demonstrate to us that our condition before becoming Jesus' followers was one of death. The reason being saved is an act of grace is that in our lostness, we're dead. Think about that the next time you attend a funeral. When people attend my funeral, the only way my lifeless body will sit up in the casket, and I know it's a little creepy to think about, but the only way that that's going to happen is if some external divine power breaks into my body. And if that was to happen, I would contribute nothing to it. This is the imagery Paul uses to describe God's sovereign work in saving people. This is grace. This is the imagery Jesus used in John 3 when he describes true Christians as those who've been born again. Just like we contributed nothing to our first birth, we contribute nothing to our second birth. This is how grace works. This is what Joshua 23 is about. If you're a Christian, have you stopped to think about the miracle that is? If you're a follower of Christ, have you ever stopped to think about the miracle that is? If you're a Jesus follower, at some point, God raised you from death to life. That's miraculous. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Have you ever said to God, God, why me? Why me? When we get this aspect of grace, it is fuel poured on the fires of worship. Now, when the scriptures affirm it is God who saves, they never encourage us to draw the conclusion that if God is at work, I can just simply sit down and do nothing. God's grace doesn't create passivity. Or laziness. It spurs us into action. Joshua 23, in the middle of all these statements about God's sovereign work on behalf of his people, we have this little phrase, you will take possession of the land. They have work to do. This is how God's grace works. It doesn't make us passive passengers. We're to be active participants. Now, what does that look like today? God's grace works in us in such a way that when God works savingly in our lives, we begin to live in such a way that expresses the salvation he has brought. 
There are numerous passages in the New Testament that talk about this. Let me show you just one. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But something happened. Something changed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, the litmus test is, is embedded in this text. Does your life manifest signs that God has saved you? That's it. Does your life manifest signs that God has saved you? See, if I'm not yielding more and more of my life to the Lordship of Christ, then there's no evidence Jesus has worked savingly in my life. It's a story of the late Billy Graham that illustrates this well. Dr. Graham was on an airplane, and he was approached by a man who was heavily intoxicated. And this man bent over and breathed all over Dr. Graham and said, Dr. Graham, I am one of your converts. Dr. Graham replied saying, well, I'm relieved to hear you're one of my converts because you're not showing any evidence of being one of Christ's converts. That's the principle. God is saying, I have given you the land. I've given it to you. But you will know nothing of that redeemed land unless you go in to possess it. Does your life manifest signs that God has saved you? God saves us by his grace. That saving grace is evident as I yield more and more of my life to the lordship of Christ. This is how grace works. Second, how obedience works. Joshua 23, verse 6. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Be careful. Verse 11. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. This repetition of the word careful is interesting. A gospel-shaped life is one that is careful to obey and careful to love the Lord. God gives us some details here in this text of what careful obedience and careful love look like. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. If you turn away and ally yourselves with survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from the good land which the Lord your God has given you. The issue is idolatry. The word used for careful in Joshua 23 is the same word that's used in 1 John 5, 21 when John says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Issues idolatry. Now, I realize ancient idolatry can be a tremendously foreign concept to us. Usually, when we think of idolatry, we think of the statues, right? Indiana Jones hasn't done us any favors here when we think about idolatry. 
But idolatry is a really a more complex phenomenon. We could go back to the Garden of Eden to find the first instance of idolatry. When the serpent convinced Adam and Eve that if they ate from that one tree God told them not to eat from, they could become godlike. Another way to think of this is this it's the greener grass conspiracy. That's idolatry. Idolatry is the greener grass conspiracy. It's how it works. When we look to someone or something and we say, if I have that, then I'll be content. That's the greener grass conspiracy. That is idolatry. When you start to think about all the good things and good people in our lives that could be, would be candidates for idols, it's no wonder why God warns us about being careful. It's not as though God is saying to them, be careful you don't kill each other. Be careful you don't swipe your neighbor's stuff. This word is implying that whatever it is they're supposed to avoid is slippery. It's conniving. It's subtle. In order to drive this point home, let's think about some examples. Politics as idolatry. Idolatry is the greener grass conspiracy. It gets us to think to ourselves, if only I could have that. If only things could be this way, then I could be content. Then I would be happy. If only the political landscape of our nation could be like fill in the blank, then I would be happy. I would tell you that the intensity of the political divide in our nation is evidence politics has become an idol for many, many people. Peggy Noonan put her finger on it. She wrote this, For more and more Americans, politics has become a religion. People find their meaning in it. When politics becomes a religion, then simple disagreements become apostasies, heresies, and you know what we do with heretics. We burn them at the stake. Listen, if you're more zealous to convert people to your political point of view than you are to see people become true followers of Jesus Christ, politics has become an idol for you. God demands a careful obedience. Which means keeping good things like politics in their proper place. Second, social causes as idolatry. Of course, Peggy Noonan's quote is not apropos of politics only, but anything including our favorite social causes. Taking care of the poor, racial reconciliation, pro-life causes. Now look, not all social causes possess moral equivalency. For the record, not all social causes possess moral equivalency. I don't have time to unpack that idea here. Noonan's observation is true, though. We find our meaning in them. That is, our true sense of value and worth is found in doing and accomplishing some social cause. But if you're using involvement in social causes to build your identity, they've become an idol to you. 
The great litmus test of this is where does your passion lie the most? Where do you find your most intense passion? If it's over converting people to your social cause movement more than it is converting people to the Jesus movement, your social cause has become an idol. God demands a careful obedience, which means keeping good things like social causes in their proper place. Third, family as idolatry. Family as idolatry. The interesting thing to note about the tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that Adam and Eve ate from, it was a good thing. There's absolutely nothing inherently evil with this tree. How do I know that? Well, it was part of the six days of creation. God took a step back, looked at all he had made, including that tree, and said, this is exceedingly good. See, idolatry works in such a way as to take a good thing in your life and promote it to an ultimate thing, a must-have thing. We look to it in order to give us something it was never intended to give us. We look to our idols to give us a sense of importance. We look to our idols to give us a sense of value. We look to our idols to comfort us and give us security. Here's the thing that happened with Adam and Eve in that tree. God designed Adam and Eve to have a particular relationship to that tree. They were designed to have a particular relationship to that tree. The moment they took from it and ate it, they changed the nature of the relationship. That's why everything broke. God had put out a masterpiece. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. But when Adam and Eve changed their relationship, the God-ordained relationship, the created order, their relationship to that tree, everything fell apart. This happens with us in all the good things that God has given us. Our families, our kids, our marriages can all become idols. If we look to our kids and we say, if only my kids would turn out like this, then I could be content. Then I could be happy. Family is a good thing. But if that's your line of thinking, it's become an ultimate thing. It is now the greener grass conspiracy. This was driven home to me several years ago. A lady in my previous church asked to meet with a pastor, and she came in, and within a couple of minutes, the tears were falling. They were just rolling off her face. And as the broken sentences came out of her mouth, I was piecing together a story. Her daughter had turned her back on God and her family and was off in Never Never Land. And this had ruined her life. This was not normal grief. I get it. When you have a prodigal child, there's going to be grief. This was not that. She had to quit her job because she became non-functioning. She could not function in her, in her role as a worker. Her marriage was now falling apart because she was no longer a wife to her husband. Decimated over the vision she had in her life of what her daughter could be and what it really was. And it destroyed her. Idols are ruthless taskmasters. They show no mercy. This mom was the epitome of what happens to us when our idols are threatened or taken away. Life 
begins to feel hardly worth living. Of course, the opposite of zealous is indifference. And that can be every bit as idolatrous, but we'll get to that when we look at the Old Testament prophets. Idolatry is slippery. It's conniving. There's a reason God uses the word careful twice in Joshua 23 to warn us about it. Love demands that we be precise. Love demands that we be particular. Love Devotion demands that we be careful. I was just 17 years old when I met the woman who's now my wife. We had a long-distance relationship for five years. That's right, five years. She was living in in, uh, Dayton, the Dayton, uh, Ohio area. I was in Green Bay. And as I think back to that time, there's something I notice now that I didn't then. Having a long-distance relationship meant that we didn't get as much face time as most dating couples do. But when we had the great gift of being able to visit each other, something changed in me. I looked and smelled a lot better when I was around her than when I wasn't. I found myself washing behind my ears, which I never do. I broke out the nice, nicer looking clothes when we were together. I didn't do that when she wasn't around. Why is that? Why was it that this, this natural young man could come out of the bathroom smelling like a flower? Love. Love. Love demands that we be precise. Love demands that we be particular. Devotion demands that we be careful. So when you truly love someone, when you're in their presence, you're careful, you're precise, you're particular. This is how obedience to God works. Third, how God's promises work. We probably think of God's promises as positive, right? You're often told, just just meditate on the promises of God. But God's promises are also negative. Look at it. You know with all your heart and soul that one of the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. That one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things that he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land that he's given you. God's promises aren't just blessings. They also contain curses for disobedience because God is resolutely faithful to his promises whatever the consequences may be. God kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob many years before. He created a great nation from Abraham. He brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He made good on those promises. But God also made good on another promise because he promised that if they went astray and chased after other gods... He would remove them from the land. When you fast forward in the Old Testament story, the northern kingdom of Israel has been conquered by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah has been conquered by Babylon. And years after this, they were dispersed among the nations again where they languished for centuries. So what relevance does that have for us? That's the condition we're all in. We all stand in this position. God has demanded a careful obedience, but we've fallen far short of that. We've succumbed to the slipperiness of idolatry countless times, and as a result, we're in the position that God warns of in these verses. The rest of the scriptures unfold this painful truth. However, woven into this painful truth is a thread of hope. There's a thread of hope. 
Later in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, there's predicted a man who would live in complete obedience to God. A man who would flawlessly adhere to the will of God. And yet despite that, he would be struck, mocked, and cut off from the good land of the living because of the sins of his people. Who's Isaiah talking about? He was, of course, talking about what Jesus would do. Jesus came as God's son. He took hold of God's covenant commands, and he loved the Lord carefully and obeyed his will precisely. And then, instead of receiving the blessing of fellowship and communion with his heavenly Father, he seemed to say to his heavenly Father, Father, give them what is due me, and give me what is due them. The reason the word gospel literally means good news is that it contains the great exchange. Jesus exchanged places with us. Jesus received what is due us so that we can receive what is due him. So on the cross, the curses of God's covenant began to fall on the Lord Jesus Christ. He came under the curse of God's judgment, and as he did so, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if there had been an answer, it would have been this, because I am resolutely faithful to my covenant promise to bring judgment upon those who appear in my sight clothed in sin. And you have appeared in my sight clothed in the sin of others. And though you are my son, I will strike you and cast you out of the good land. And so Jesus experienced the awful desolation and curse of the cross. He became a curse for us, says Paul to the Galatians. And he did this so there would be someone you can turn to for hope. Jesus says to you, I have endured the judgment of God for you so you can come from the far country into the presence of God. I've taken the curse of sin upon myself so you can have the blessings of God heaped upon you. Come in from the far country. Come enter the good land of the living. Now the question to you is, have you done that? Through Jesus, have you entered the good land of the living? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray your grace would amaze us once again. We are never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of our lowly state until we have compared ourselves with your majesty. Only when that happens can your love and grace amaze us. That you would be mindful of us to the point of clothing yourself in frail human flesh, subjecting yourself to the depravity of sinful humanity and submitting to a death fit only for sinners isn't just remarkable It's life-altering. Jesus, we need your help to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is your love for us. We pray to be able to grasp that in these moments. For your glory alone, we pray these things. 